welcome to the Filament Games Podcast, a show dedicated to game-based learning. Here are your hosts, Brandon Pitzer and Dan Norton. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Filament Games Podcast. I am one of your hosts. I'm Brandon Pitzer, VP of Marketing at Filament Games. And with me is my co-host. That's me. I'm Dan Norton. Uh, I am the Chief Creative Officer at Filament. <laughs> you stumped yourself for a second. Yeah, I, you know, I was like, which? Yeah, I have several <laughs> hats. Yeah, that's true. Which, which glorious title do I want to invoke today? Yeah. And with us today is a member of Dan Norton's team, Lydia Simchich. Uh, who is a game designer um, with an educational background in history and Japanese and digital humanities. Those were her focuses in school. Um, and uh, Lydia actually used to design and care for museum exhibits before she joined Filament. And uh, now that she's joined us, she combines her passion for interactive learning and video games as a game designer for us. So hello, Lydia, and welcome to the show. Hello. So today um, we have a very special episode planned where we're going to speak with Dan and Lydia about uh, myths in game-based learning, of which there are many, and we are going to do some myth busting. Yeah. But before we get into that, um, we're going to uh, have a brief discussion of what we're all playing these days. Um, so Norton, why don't you kick it off? What are you playing, man? Uh, I'm playing a, a, a pretty obscure indie title. You probably haven't heard of it. It's called Fall Guys. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Oddly running simulator. Yeah. Yeah. So I this is not... I don't know. It's a complicated game for me because it's uh, it's not it's not mechanically interesting. You're just a small bean running around uh, a field of obstacles and you fall off things. Um, but it is extremely well polished and it does have a charming sense of humor. And it and right now, since I don't really have any like main game that i've like lashed my soul onto it's kind of a nice in-betweener game that you can get around done in like under 10 minutes and then decide if you want to do another one uh sure so a nice yeah. pick up and play experience yeah so i'm in between games so i guess maybe that's part of my reluctance to be like that's what i'm playing right now i'm not like shooting for some sick fall guys seasonal accomplishment or something i'm just sure. i'm just running my little bean around the best i can okay yeah that game uh, is is experiencing a resurgence of popularity on streaming and and stuff as i've seen so um i've, I've been wanting to check it out too so maybe i'll uh, dip my toe in uh for my part um i've just been playing a little bit of no man's sky they just dropped a whole new expansion um yet again they're just relentless with it. Um, I think this is actually their 20th post-launch free content release. Um, so tip of the cap uh, to those developers for continuing. Do you think, Brandon, do you think it's time for them to charge? I think they've earned it. I think they've earned a paid expansion at this point. I think so, too. I think. I mean, that most recent release, I think, is actually versioned as 3.95. Mm -hmm. So I could certainly see a world where they bring a 4.0 out and then that that has a cost associated to it. I know another way that they're increasingly or increasing their uh, the, the scale of their monetization possibilities is bringing uh, the game to the Nintendo Switch. So they'll have an entire new entirely new platform at their disposal, which will wow. uh, certainly be an addition um, to their to their revenue because um, the Switch is very very popular. Um, <clears throat> so you know, I think that that. Um, but I think you're right. Like they've they've put out so much goodwill and value to their community at this point. Um, I think they could safely start charging for DLC. Um, mm. So yeah, I'm 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 agreeing with you. I think we should start tweeting at Hello Games and just be like, take our money. Yeah, <laughs> Lydia, how about you? What are you playing these days? Oh gosh, I honestly because I'm in the process of packing up my apartment to move states, that's where most of my energy, my emotional energy has been going. So I've been, <laughs> I've been playing cookie clicker and feeding off of the games that other people around me have been playing and just wanting to talk about, which has been really fun. I can talk more about those games because they're infinitely more interesting. <laughs> um, no, I think you should, you should talk about cookie clicker. <laughs> I think like, I mean, there's, I love 
dark, kind of irreverent humor. At the moment, I'm also just very tired. And so having the little dopamine uh, number go up fast moments is is kind of nice. It's nice to have something kind of in the background. Um, and there recently was, it's, it's also been very interesting to see that because this game I remember playing in high school, maybe junior year of junior or senior year of high school. And for reference, I graduated that in 2014. So it's been a, a while. Mm-hmm. It's, it's been interesting to see how much got added. One, the fact that it's still there. Two, the fact that there are more, there are mini games now. There's so many different types of milk based on the achievements. I mean, even just since I was playing, they added even more achievements because numbers keep getting bigger. Uh, mm-hmm. And also, the uh, the the uh, grandma apocalypse is even more sinister than I remember it. <laughs> it's kind of interesting to see uh, how a a game which keep which where the premise is just keep getting more cookies, keep making bigger numbers, have to grow with the amount of years that it's been online. Right. Oh, sure. Cookie clicker power creep is what you're describing there. Yeah. I mean. I I now know like what the word for 15 uh gosh what is it like quindecillion is a word I never knew existed yeah. until recently and that's not even the the most that you can be achieve that you can get as an achievement for something so and and uh, for for me because I'm pretty much uninitiated I'm still kind of hung up on a term which is gram apocalypse could you just uh, maybe I mean, honestly, Brandon, a cookie <laughs> clicker is free. Yeah. <laughs> so you're yeah. saying I shouldn't spoil it for myself? No, yeah, I say don't spoil it because it, it is a pillar of the uh, idle incremental genre. Like it's one of the finest and it's okay. been around for so long that. Yeah, I think I think that like it is self-referential. It is very silly, but it in terms of of how things can get dark, it, it gets it's one of those uh, greed and capitalism go will take you nowhere but despair moments that like things like Little Inferno has, but uh, uh, definitely a bit sillier in mind. I would say just go for it. I think you can get to said Grandma Apocalypse pretty quickly, even if you want to get get to that point. So what I'm hearing is that Cookie Clicker is basically the same thing as a film like There Will Be Blood, for instance. <laughs> I mean. Honestly, I, I make no claims that Cookie Clicker is any form of sophisticated, but it is interesting. I would yeah. say if you want to have like a, a slightly more game, like substantial game type c- clicker game, I would say get Space Plan. If it's basically a clicker with more of a game, a slight narrative, and instead of cookies, it's potatoes. It's great. I see. All right. All right. Well, I would say that Cookie Clicker and There'll Be Blood are both similar in that while you're experiencing them, you like gain confusion about what you're what you're supposed to be experiencing. Yeah, like I can't tell where my morality is supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> kind mm-hmm. of thing. yeah. So yeah, actually, yeah, I would say go. It they're pretty close. There'll be blood, and yeah, they're basically the same thing. I've got my Saturday planned. Yeah. <laughs> then try Candy Box after that. I mean, good news is that it is an idle game. You can put on Cookie Clicker on your phone and then play No Man's Sky on the side. That's true. Ingenious. Yeah, super efficient. Yeah, (laughs) Multiple games at once. I love it. Um, All right, excellent. Well, uh, that uh, rounds off the discussion of what we're playing these days. Um, Let's get into the the actual substance of the episode, the myth-busting. So um, we have gathered uh, nine myths... Um, that we're going to run through and I'm uh, going to let uh, Lydia and Dan do most of the speaking because they're the game design experts here. Um, so would love to hear the, the thoughts that they've got on all these different myths. Um, this first one, actually, though, we are not going to discuss. Um, the first myth is game-based learning and gamification are the same thing. And the reason we're not going to discuss it is we dedicated an entire episode to this matter way back when in season one. So if you want to dig in on that, our opinions remain the same about the differences between those types of game design. Um, and uh, you can check out uh, F, uh, the Film and Games podcast, episode nine of season one, entitled Games, 
game-based learning and gamification. So that's just like, you know, think of that as like the center square on a bingo card or something, you know, it's like, that's just a freebie. Um, it's yeah. pre-busted. I'd like to add that we've had it up to here with you people asking this question. <laughs> so, yeah. Our mailbags are literally overflowing with letters that just say game-based learning and gamification are the yes, same. Thing. Because we, yeah, we print emails and put them in a bag to evaluate how fed we are up we are with, with communication. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Very Mackenzie. practical system. Mackenzie is certainly sick of printing those emails. Uh, <laughs> All right, so uh, myth number two, um, accessibility features require sacrificing playability or quality. So uh, let's dig into that one. Uh, I think uh, the first thing I want to uh, bring up is a uh, phrase that may be familiar, may not be, but is kind of my try and true touchstone for why this is a myth is the cut curb effect. So the idea being that sidewalks have cuts in the curbs where you can cross the street and originally like those are accessibility features for folks in wheelchairs for folks who have um who are blind for folks who have some form of assistance walking but they benefit everybody including uh people who um are moving for instance people with strollers uh people who are being followed by little kids on tricycles and scooters. And the idea of the cut curb effect um, using that example is that accessibility features are not just helpful for uh, people who need accessibility or like people, one, one you would think that would need an, a form of accessibility. They are helpful for so many more. I firmly believe that subtitles are another example of the cut curb effect. Um, which I can dig into a little bit if we if you want to talk about that. But absolutely, close, yeah, closed captioning and subtitles honestly are fantastic. They're great not just for folks who are um, who have uh, who are hearing impaired or who are in the deaf community, but um, they're also great for people who are learning English as another language or another language. Um, if you are an English speaker trying to learn another language. Um, but also in terms of, um, but um, they're also really great for folks who have trouble with auditory processing. So people with autism and especially people with ADHD, um, auditory processing and being able to hear the words and have them compute is oftentimes difficult. And so having subtitles or closed captioning on a, a TV show, or if you get easily distracted by sounds in the background, or you have a very noisy room, subtitles are great. So having subtitles as a default option or having them at all is another cut curve effect that just makes so many people's lives easier in video games. I don't know if any of you have siblings who are very loud and you've had the experience of not being able to hear your game, the dialogue in this tense scene because your siblings being extremely loud. <laughs> another cut curve effect. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. I think another one to add onto that too is like a lot of the time classrooms don't have access to headphones or they can't have everyone using speakers at once. So making sure that the game has all the information that and let it being able to play without audio is often pretty crucial. Mm -hmm. Right. That <clears throat> it's interesting how the accessibility can be based on the individual or like the context um, in which the, the game is engaged with. All right, cool. Um, so uh, let's see, Norton, anything to add? Well, I mean, I think Lydia really covered it with a really nice example, um, like the, the general sort of area of research this sort of goes into is UDL, Universal Design for Learning. And it's something that on every project we make at Filament, we're looking for places to get those, those wins where we can provide access to more users and also make the game better at the same time. Uh, and there's a ton of those things exist. So it's really, it's a great way to approach accessibility. And uh and you get a lot of wins that way. Absolutely. Yeah, I really like the metaphor of the the cut curb effect. That's uh, a really really great way great way to translate it into a more just general understanding of how this can improve uh, everyone's welfare when they engage with the game. All right, so uh, we can consider that myth thoroughly busted. Uh, moving on to the next one, um, we've got uh, screen time is inherently negative. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, this one's, I don't know if we can like, just like bust this one as much as it feels good to bust. Uh, I think it's tricky, right? Because I, I do think there are certainly ways that people can spend time on screen that are not great, that are maybe a waste of time that are fatiguing and draining. Um, uh, but I think it's really rather than think of it as like the screen has some sort of inherent tax, it's really more, yeah. What are you doing with the time on the screen? Like, mm-hmm. are you engaged in an interesting problem? Are you, uh, talking to people you care about? Uh, are you learning something about a, uh, a hobby or skill you're passionate about? Like there's lots of ways that electronic devices can convey information that is really rich and powerful and useful. Um, And uh, I don't know. I think it's sort of a weird way to ration your time in terms of just like, well, how much of it involves a glowing rectangle? Um, I mean, sure, we've all had screen fatigue, I think, you know, especially with our COVID apocalypse. I think we've all learned that there are great times to step away from from the square and that's you know i think that's great and fine but i think i think it everyone should be more interested in how they're spending their media consumption time in terms of what is the media and what is its quality rather than whether or not it's illuminated electronically yeah i think um there's also i at least i found having onboarded to film it remotely from the beginning because i onboarded in 2020 (laughs) um the accursed year that like there's certain types of there's different ways that i feel screen fatigue whether it's physical in terms of my eyes hurt and that you can actually there are some ways you can mitigate that um uh with either you know blue blocking lenses or or changing your light or just not looking at a screen but also in terms of how does it fill your emotional and mental cup I think the idea, like the the idea of checking in and seeing, you know, is like like the idea of sometimes I want to be around people, but and the only way to do that is with a screen. But it's more exhausting on some days than others, and others it just brings me life. Checking in with yourself that I think is important. That there's also the question of uh, medium as well. I mean, if you, I I understand totally why some people love screen reading, um, like a reading on a kindle or on their tablet Uh, and if if uh if the book's not the problem but the screen is that if there's an option go for it change change the medium but in terms of screen equals bad not everything i think we've been forced to reckon with the fact that it's not that simple consider when when everything had to be put on a screen we could not it, we we were no longer allowed the luxury of saying uh, yes, everything about the screen is bad. It's it's way more complex and gray than that. Right, and even before the pandemic started, that meme was going around of you know I can't wait to get home from bad screen so I can look at good screen. So I think <laughs> that mm-hmm. dichotomy already existed before screens uh, asserted themselves as in some ways our sole avenues towards the rest of humanity depending on what's going on outside you know yeah and that's um, why i'm hesitant to like fully bust you know it's like exactly yeah like, somewhere in between yeah mm-hmm. actually interested in your thoughts about uh vr time because i know that you go you delve deeper into the wells of virtual reality than anyone else i know honestly i have yeah i think it, it is definitely you know like anything it's it's sort of experience dependent um and you see actually a big range of um you know talking about accessibility features the uh, vr has its own set uh, that are entirely discrete to VR. Um, things like vignetting when you move uh, to reduce the motion sickness you get from having things moving in your peripheral uh, vision. Um, you know, all the way down to like, do you have good counterweights attached to your head strap? 
<laughs> so that so that the pressure isn't entirely on the top of your cheekbones. You want the pressure to actually sit on the top of your skull because your skull is better equipped for that amount of pressure for that amount of time. Um, so the, you know all those considerations come into play, um, and I, it really does depend on what you're doing in the game. So if there's like a lot of locomotion, that's going to like get you to to uh, the sick mode end of the spectrum much faster than um, like a nice stationary experience. I would say like space flight games are kind of your optimal VR use case at the moment because um, you're, you're not driving. Like your body has certain expectations about what happens when you're driving a car, for instance. And when you're driving a car in VR and you don't feel the weight that your body is accustomed to, it, it, it triggers all of that kind of mental confusion and physiological uh, dissonance that re- like essentially your body thinks it's hallucinating and has been poisoned. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why the nausea imp- effect occurs. Um, when you're in space flight, most of us have absolutely no frame of reference for that. So you're going in essentially fresh and you're seated. Um, so, you know, as long as you don't do anything too crazy, you can fly pretty pretty easily and for a really long time in a game like you know no man's sky or elite dangerous if you put the headset on for that um but yeah that you know what's interesting about vr is like on time unlike most screen time um varieties it comes with a like a severe physical impact that will absolutely assert itself within an hour or two of being in the experience Um, yeah i'm glad you brought up the the um the uh, simulation sickness and the fact that the nausea is kind of hardwired to to save you from poisoning because the it, it, it is an example of accessibility also as a important thing for everybody is that um the other part of that is your brain is wired to vomit anything that is poison it's also wired to never want to touch that thing ever again and so if your VR game purposely makes people nauseous as a, you know, can you handle this kind of machismo thing, that's going to be terrible for your game as a marketable item. Because once someone, you know, feels ill from your game, their brain is essentially mm-hmm. wired to say, I'm never doing this again. I'm never recommending this. This is going to make me ill. I should never have this experience that's not great yeah. either from a from a player experience a compassionate player experience nor from a marketing perspective yeah i got salmonella from beef dumplings once and it was i couldn't even like see a truck with like a picture of dumplings on the side of it for like a year or two i don't know <laughs> Yeah. Oh man, it's it takes years to get over. I've had I've had cycles where I've had to get over that sort of thing. Thank thankfully I've not gotten simulation sickness from VR yet considering I was deving in VR for a while. Yeah, yeah I think I think the worst one I ever had was um I was uh, doing a moon rover, like a lunar rover in Elite Dangerous, and I like came over the crest of a hill, not realizing that the other side of the hill was essentially sheer, oh. and immediately went into a head-over-head tumble oh. that was completely inescapable, you know, because it's physics-based. You can't just like, and, and it's like, a, that game is such a hardcore simulation. There's no like, oh, I'm going to teleport away from this situation. It's like, yeah. you are where you are. Oh, no. <laughs> so, I was literally just like rip, like ripping the headset off as yeah, I was yeah, yeah. Going, just, get me out of here. You know, it was like when they like unplug you from the matrix, you know, um, <laughs> oh, I was just like, like, get me out as soon as you can. I was calling. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, all right. So I think, I think we want to uh, move on to our next myth here. Um, so um, everyone wants to learn through games. There is, if you've ever played games, You've probably had the experience of talking to someone else who plays games, but your game taste is nothing at all similar. And you're like, well, hmm, kind of stops there. There is so much variety in genre and in subject matter of games as a medium. It really is has to be taken as a medium. And not everybody learns from different types of media the same way. Some people really vibe from learning from documentaries or visual like movies, passive things like that, that engages them, that makes them remember things. Other people like books and other people like games. But 
is one particular form of teaching going to work for everybody? No, <laughs> I think I, there is a, I think there's a temptation to go, this is the new thing. It'll revolutionize and everybody will benefit from it. And it's like, no, okay. We're all very different in how we think and learn. We need to honor that and be excited about the fact that there's more choices for people who don't learn well from books or from mm -hmm. in-person class or from a, a, a visual, like a, a lecture. But is it going to work for everybody? No, because they're not wired the same way. Yeah, I totally agree. I think um, I've I've given talks before in uh, you know like at, at places like Games for Change where we touch on this this idea for folks who are kind of they're not fully acquainted with this idea of educational games and like what the best use case is for those, how they fit in what you might call like the overall media mix. Uh, that you might find in an educational environment, whether that's like a K-12 classroom or a more informal environment like a library or media center, uh, whatever the case is, um, you're going to have kids who engage with all the different kinds of content differently. Um, so, you know, a, another a sort of a sub-myth to this is that all kids love video games. And I mean, any of us can think of our own personal experiences and the, the kids we knew growing up and know that that's not true. Um, so it, it's important to just remember that educational games are not, you know, a silver bullet uh, in terms of being able to engage every single student with any kind of content, um, because sometimes the medium itself is not engaging to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of the time there's a, a, a ton of enthusiasm for learning games because you think of you think of the levels of commitment and passion that some people put into the games they play, right? You know, they they get so into it and it's such a huge pull on their life and they have so much grit and determination and research and follow through and community, like all these things get engaged through play, which is great. Um, but that's still, you know, a game that person chose uh, because it spoke to them and their, their interests and capabilities and where they're currently at in their life. And, uh, that's just a different setup than setting a game out and asking 30 random people, well, if you play this, is this going to become the most amazing, like life encompassing piece of media for you or not? The odds are like some people will really dig it. Some people might hate it. Uh, and that's, that's just the reality of making, well, really making any media, but when you make games, like you can't make games for everyone. Yeah. Uh a point of maybe self-reflection to illustrate this is thinking about how if if listen well lovely listener thinking about how um you went through education or school or training or whatever what what did you end up learning and how did you end up learning it and did you have a favorite way of learning it and did it change depending on what you were learning so in science, did you really like labs for one subject, for one type of science like chemistry, but hate labs for biology? Did you like lectures for uh, math, but really hated lectures in English class or for literature? And even then, I think that there is a great variety in how people enjoy to learn, even if they have some consistency, such as I prefer to have discussion-based classes. But depending on what on what you're also trying to to learn, um, you may gravitate towards a different method depending on on the subject and how you relate to that subject too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very true. I think different subjects lend themselves better to different kinds of interactive explorations for sure. Um, so you see that that spectrum in games, and then you know I think. Um, in terms of like people's affinity towards games, you know, Norton got me thinking a lot about something that, you know, when you're in your thirties, you start to realize that <laughs> your enjoyment of games was hugely based on the community of game consumers that you belonged to. And now all of those people are doing very different things with their lives. <laughs> so mm -hmm. your diminishment of certain games or your enjoyment of certain games is going to diminish significantly because your friends aren't there anymore. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of it is about being part of a community of, of participation um and you know the, which is why i think a game like minecraft was very logical to bring into the classroom because they're drawing on a very robust community of participation yeah um that was directly overlapping with their student demographics mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
It's also a very flexible game in terms of gameplay style and what you get out of it because you can play on a huge server with tons of people and uh, create elaborate mazes and, and other miniature games in in Minecraft or you can play on your own as a hobbit who goes on week-long adventures and then comes back to your chicken farm aka how I play Minecraft uh-huh. and <laughs> both are facilitated and both are completely valid yeah I think another interesting gradient is uh how uh many games I played in my my youth and my free and fancy uh years were uh Games are hinged around having good reflexes. Mm. Like uh, being able to make someone's head explode right when they come around the corner. Uh, You know, and I was very fond of a lot of those types of things. And these days, mm, you know, I I could still play them. But can I beat, you know, a 17-year-old who's had four Mountain Dews on the, you know, it eh, not so much. What if you had five Mountain Dews? I think I I think that just brings us back to like our previous conversations about nausea threshold. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think after a certain point, you can see FPS in real life. You know, <laughs> yeah. you can actually see the count. Uh, all right. Well, that myth is busted. Uh, moving on to number five, um, and this one's getting into uh, a tension that exists. I think just across bodies of research and study. Um, but this myth is, uh, games are useful only insofar as they are measurable. Mm. Oh. Yeah. So going back to Minecraft, I think what's the fact that Minecraft doesn't really have a, a goal or an end. You can choose what your goal is or what you want to do in the game. And it, is fulfilling in those ways it is there i think there's a big um temptation to have measurable results in terms of did you get it right did you learn the thing this one measurable thing Mm -hmm. i think in part because we're so used to having that be the goal of education or at least how we met have metrics for education but when you think about a game giving making an impact on someone and what they bring away from the game it really in some i i am personally someone who thinks that that the immeasurable ones are the more lasting and the more um important but i think that it is that there there are a lot more ways that games can um make an impact or can leave you having learned something or experiencing experience something differently or thought about something differently that is not quantifiable in terms of a score or an achievement or a round that was won by one person i think i mean i brought up minecraft but are there yeah. other games i mean are there other games in term both in entertainment and in education that you would um like there's the joke of are you winning son um you know that you that are you don't have a win state but you yourself kind of make your own win state you make your own um goal and achievement even if the game doesn't serve it to you yeah i think that's a great point i feel like uh minecraft is such a good example and i was trying to fish around for it's hard to think of another equivalently good one because it's oh um Mm, well, honestly, it's it's, it's kind of bad. thinking like you can subvert games with win states to have your own win states because um, or your own uh, uh, accomplishments. Because like I play Civilization, kind of funny. <laughs> I may go for one of the stock achievements, but a lot of the times it's more just, hey, can I can I play as a warmonger and not die? Sure. That in itself is a fulfilling achievement for me because I'm asking myself to think in a different way. And that's not, I definitely would not have won the warmonger achievement in civilization because I'm bad at it. But mm-hmm. for me, the impact was, uh, let me, let me force myself to think and get a different strategy. Did I accomplish that? And what did I learn from it? Even if I didn't accomplish it. Yeah. And I think even more uh, more granularly, like let's say you made a game and you're very committed to the idea of assessment 
in all actions. A lot of the time when a player is playing a game, they may do something wrong on purpose just to like test the boundaries of how the game works. Mm -hmm. They may be like, Hey, can I, well, can I go left even though the level looks like I'm supposed to go right? Or what happens if I jump on that crate or whatever it is, right? You might be doing something that the game doesn't consider technically correct, but the player is just interrogating the environment and uh, learning more about how it functions. And so, you know, if your game was set up with absolutely rigor, like absolutely rigid uh, assessment metrics, every time you weren't just doing exactly the thing you could do to a, to advance towards winning would be considered, you know, bad. And that just sucks like the entire purpose of having a game just right out, right out the window, right there. You know, a, a game is supposed to be a space for experimentation uh, for interesting failures and getting feedback to allow you to refine what you're thinking about. I often sort of kind of go for the goal of design of not how do I get the player to be right as quick as possible, but like how long can we keep a player thinking about the right type of problem for as long as possible? Like how long can they stay engaged with the idea of a system or a practice or a perspective. And inside that time when they're thinking about it, I don't actually really care a lot if they're making quote unquote right or wrong choices. I just want them to inhabit that thought practice for as long as they can. Cause I feel like that practice is the thing that we're trying to transfer outside of the game experience and uh, something that we want them to take when they get out the other side. Yeah, like it's I, just about getting a question right. You know, we already got quizzes. Quizzes are great at retention. Like we already have ways to get you to retain a piece of information and then report that you've retained it. So yeah. I want to like underline and highlight the point that you made of of it carrying after you've left the game, because quite frankly, a lot of the games we're, we make are for classrooms and they don't have a lot of time to play in class. Yeah. Um, or maybe they're having to trade off computers or something. Um, if you can, even if you can't, if you do not have the ability, the, to, to think about keeping a person in the game for very long, then the question, the question still stands of how do I get, keep the player thinking about this after they've left? Uh The amount of time can be very brief in a game, but if the impact is potent enough or the, the, the question is interesting enough or the experimentation hooks them, then that is what carries and it carries well past their time playing in the game. Absolutely. And I think um, the things that we try to accomplish in games, you know, and many of our clients are trying to accomplish in games are sort of in direct conflict with measurement. Um, A lot of games these days are designed to get kids ready with general skills that are usable in, um, kind of the new, you know, tech-based service-oriented workforce. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, you classically hear these things called the four C's of 21st century learning. That's uh, collaboration and communication and critical thinking and creativity. And it's very difficult to come up with a game mechanic. It may even be impossible to come up with a game mechanic that assigns like a a number um, to one of those traits and then uh, have that number be useful as a predictor of whether that person can take those traits into a workforce environment. Mm-hmm. I am 17 creative. Exactly. Yeah. It's just, it's, it sounds ridiculous on its face. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in a lot of ways, what we're trying to create with game-based learning is qualitative outcomes. Um, these, you know, these skills that transfer into the workforce Um, they tend to be a little bit softer and a little bit less measurable and more abstract. Mm. All right. Uh, So uh, this next myth uh, is sort of one that we see in terms of like development processes and like the way that we go about making games. So this one is Games can be made, uh, I should say, learning games can be made as reusable templates. Uh, This one hurts me inside. (laughs) Do you want to go first, Lydia, and get the pain out? Yeah, it it hurts me inside explicitly because I've tried to do this. But the thing about 
templates only work for what like like what Norrin said is quizzes or uh affirmation that you know the the specific thing yeah. and it really doesn't work well it doesn't serve the actual content justice um <laughs> so i mean in general we try to have the game mechanics relate to um the content as much as possible and and the processes the systems or the identity of what we're trying to um, get the player to kind of um, immerse themselves in and templates. If if you can have anything in a spot, that spot has to be so neutral, so agnostic that it has to by like be divorced from the content as much as possible in order for it to actually work as a template. That is the antithesis of what we're trying to do and what we find is effective in impact games. Uh, and it also just makes it really hard to be fun because with a template there is a right or wrong answer and when it comes to right or wrong answers you're gonna it's again the idea of you can't experiment you just fail or you win but mostly you fail yep yeah that that just general like linear paradigm of leading a player towards, you know, binary outcomes essentially um, is, you know, is, I think we could just call it deterministic. It, it essentially makes it so there is there is no room for error or or slack for discovery at all. Mm-hmm. I the, a thing that sometimes I will say to clients or incoming potential clients is. Uh, like the more a game is about everything, the more a game is about nothing, right? Like the the reason you should make a learning game is because it can actually sort of demonstrate the unique anatomy of what you're trying to teach and present it in a multi-dimensional and engaging way. Like it, you can make the game be the actual shape of the information rather than just turning it into the text that represents that you remember the pieces of the information that can be turned into text. So when you go all the way into the cost and struggle and difficulty of making an engaging, playful experience, and then throw out the idea that it's not actually going to embody content in an authentic way, uh, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. I think it there is a very reasonable, and I understand this, especially when cost is so, um, so vital for especially when it comes to to uh, clients who they really want to get as much as they can. They don't have a ton of money. Um, getting mo- more content in there and having it be a template is very tempting, but also human beings are very intelligent. Players of games are intelligent. They will be able to notice when what they're doing is the same thing every single day. They know they can tell that what they're playing is exactly the same as what they were doing before. And so even if you reskin the templates, if it is a template by template thing, they will notice. And that Ultimately, if the goal is to keep them playing and keep them engaging with the content for as long as possible or to have it linger like we were talking about with the previous myth, that's going to get shut down and thrown away because it's just the same. Why would you keep engaging with something when you've already done it? And and that's a disservice to the content and a disservice to uh, the player, too. It It is I, I understand where the where the impulse comes from, but. It, it really does just sabotage uh, what you're trying to, to achieve in terms of engage, engaging people in what you want them to learn. Um, now, this one we sort of covered a little bit, um, so maybe we can just give this one a very light touch, but we, uh, we, we I think we talked about this quite a bit during... Um, the idea that everyone wants to learn through games. So this myth is gamers love all games equally. Nope. (laughs) Oh yeah. This one's like already like pre-busted for, for your enjoyment. Yeah. Uh, like we really kind of talked about how we have games as a unique unlock 
uh, that people are like, oh, we'll make it game, so therefore everyone will love it. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I have much else to say about getting into this one. Yeah, I, there's uh, suffice to say, there's a lot more that goes into the love of a game besides just the fact that it is a game. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, we can uh, jump on to myth number eight. So um, this one's interesting because it intersects with uh, some of the really cool work that we're doing uh, with FIRST. Um, so this myth is uh, learning games should be competitive to maximize outcomes. Yeah. Um, so this, this does kind of tie into the, uh, you know, another one of those things with people like, you know, what's great about games is, you know, a lot of time people think about sports, right? Which is another huge pillar of how games affect people's lives. Um, and a lot of people in their lives get really positive interaction and community and, and a sense of belonging out of their participation in sports, both when they're maybe in school and they played those things and then cheering on for their favorite sports teams in their various incarnations later on. But um, when you pit children against each other inside a game environment, uh, definitely the people who like that competition generally the most will be the ones that are winning. And then generally the people who will like it the least are the ones who are losing. Um, so by ha- by sort of turning learning into a more of a zero sum proposition of like someone is going to be considered the the best at learning in this, and then we'll also identify who are the worst. Um, you're kind of putting like a downward spin on the students that you would actually probably like to help the most. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. This is the point where a lot of the previous myths feed into the future myths because this goes into uh, the one where, you know, people like all games, you know, competitive. There are folks who really love team sports, hate competitive individual sports, which is why there's variations on things like figure skating and karate where it's not where it's you uh, competing as a group as opposed to an individual. There are also there's there's also the idea. um, as well of if you're competing then that means that you are surrendering the idea of an impact as a goal and and having that be the thing that lingers because you've set the goal to be to win almost and i think you know creating that sort of outcome uh, can have a very serious effect on a student's um, identity and their self-perception about, you know, their talent in any given area. Um, I know we've heard many examples. Um, I think there's one anecdote in uh, The Game Believes in You by Greg Tapo, um, where a student uh, mentions that, you know, she's terrible at math. She's playing a math game that she enjoys. And she's like, you know, I'm really bad at math, but my avatar is amazing at it. So you know, she, <laughs> within this game context, is succeeding at math, but her self-perception is such that she can't make the connection. She's not making the connection that that's her <laughs> succeeding that's at math. That's you know? interesting. Um, yeah. And it, it's, it's uh, so I think, it, and that's something where, um, you know, we've talked about that in terms of like how, you know, games and identity intersect and like what identity you embody in a game changes how you interact with it. Um, so if a game sets you up like in Contents Under Pressure, a game that we made um, uh, about chemical safety, um, in this game, you are working, uh, you know, in an actual like laboratory environment. So you are coming from it from a default premise of like, I am a chemistry professional. And that's going to change how you make decisions in the game as opposed to like you are a student learning about this chemistry profession that is untouchable and uh, inaccessible to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it, there's also, I, I also worry about, you know, when it comes to things that are like competition, if we, it become the question of how do you make, how do you integrate accessibility in a way that does not invalidate the players who need those accessibility things. It, 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 I worry about that too, because, okay, say that your, your first off premise is that 
the kids who are who need the mo- help, most help are the ones who are not winning. And they're the ones who are not being as celebrated by the game. And, and they're the ones who need the most help in the classroom from this game. As you add more structures and help, then I think there's also kind of a toxic idea of, well, if you needed those assistance, do you, does that mean you really won? No, yeah. I don't I personally oh. don't like to touch that sort of thing with a 10 foot pole. I'm a very non-competitive person. Um, and I think that that is in part why not to say that accessibility cannot, the accessibility features are all like handicaps or I don't know what the right word would be, but it gets, when it comes to trying to balance a competitive game so it serves both the folks who are losing and the folks who are winning, it gets very difficult, um, if possible at all. Yeah, I I used to think I was a very non-competitive person. And then I finally realized that I was, in fact, very competitive and that I just simply... If I saw an arena in which I didn't think I would do very well, I would just avoid it like the plague and say, oh, I'm not competitive. I'm not interested in that. But in fact, I like doing things. I like competitive spaces where I think I'm going to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. I, uh, I actually started playing Magic the Gathering for that reason, because I was like, you know what? I need to get better at losing. And I'll tell you. Magic is a great game to get better at losing. Like you can mm-hmm. go to the game store, sit down with a bunch of strangers and have like a 12 year old kick your butt at a game of cards and, <laughs> uh, and realize you've been entirely bested and there's nothing you can do about it. And uh, yeah, I'm a better loser than I used to be for sure. I think there's also different types of competition because I do not like playing against other players, but I love competition against, in, and I'm also not a competition against self person. I'm not the type of person who wants to get the high, beat my high score and get like 0.06 seconds off a of time doing a level. But when it comes to games like Tetris, where I'm competing against the environment or I'm competing against the game system itself, I love seeing how far I can survive against the system that's coming at me. And that's a lot of fun. That is a form of competition. Um, just seeing like how, 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 how crazy can the, can the game get? And I still do. Okay. Is really fun, but put me in a, in a one V one game. No, I, I don't like that. I do not have fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm the same way. I'm uh, particularly, you know, in those, reflex heavy games where it's and and people are you know using <laughs> caffeine and and others uh, and etc um to to increase their focus and their their ability to see the individual vibrations of every pixel on the screen um and, and those i tend to avoid but i do i enjoy uh competitive scenarios where it's like um competitive strategies you know, optimizing your use of a system. Um, and it's more of like a slow and less direct kind of competition. Um, and it, you know, it's sort of like a battle of wits at that point, as opposed to a battle of reflexes. And I definitely enjoy that sort of thing. So you're right. There's, there are many different kinds of competition. And I think, you know, um, (laughs) kind of going back to what I had mentioned earlier about how this sort of intersects with our friends at first, um, they have, uh, actually trademarked um, this concept uh, called cooperation, um, and it is part uh, like a core part of the principles that they apply to their competitive robotics events. Um, so the idea is that it, you know it's emphasizing sportsmanship, uh, good conduct, um, the fact that you know life is competitive in many ways, um, and you know somewhat inescapably so, uh, regardless of where you are. Um, but you know, also emphasizing the the team dynamics and the collaborative dynamics that can occur um, within the context of a of a competition. Mm-hmm. Totally. I think one nice thing to uh, maybe it reminds me of when we did the Roboco first robotics competition. Like the the avenues of which you were scored were like very different avenues, right? There was like a pure uh accomplishment uh route of like did you get the things done uh there was an efficiency of your build for the robot you made and there was also the aesthetics like how cool was your robot uh in terms of how it looked and how it worked 
Um, and I thought that was really nice because it gave, you know, even players with different versions of competition, different ways to think about how they excelled. Uh, and uh, I think that, I think that their model is a really healthy one. You do get, you do get a sense of like, even if someone else's robot wins, it's still really fun to see what they did. And you can root for the teams one way or the other. Uh, yeah. So. I love the fact that those criteria are so different and they're all valued because I think that that is the thing that makes binary you win, you lose so painful is that even if you did something cool, if you lost, that cool thing doesn't matter. Yep. And if it's valued and it feels valued and it and that in itself can can lead you in some really interesting places and also makes you more encouraged to improve in the places where you didn't get as high of a score because mm-hmm. you're not just like it's not just branded a failure this robot is 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 succeeding in some ways can be better in others all right we did well in this area let's see what we can do it's a much better starting point for the next round or the next competition than just nope you did wrong exactly it's it's much more motivating to to know that there is something that you did that you really should carry forward <laughs> into the next time that you do that thing. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, should we consider that myth busted? I think we should. We I mean, it's hard. it's like myth roughly massaged. I don't, <laughs> you know, like we didn't, there's, there's good stuff about competition, but I think we did a nice job fleshing out the idea. Yeah, I think, you know, a myth can be considered busted if it if it is, uh, you know, if, if the stridency of the phrasing is in any way punctured by our discussion. So, um, oh, all right, the, the, they they can be competitive to maximize outcomes, but not all learning games should be competitive to maximize yeah. outcomes. Yep. Um, it's not necessarily the competition alone that is maximizing the outcome. Exactly. All right. So on to myth number nine and our final myth of the day. Learning games are just for kids. Oh, well, that one's true. No. (laughs) So so I I have been in filament for two years and uh, just shy of two years, I started my first game that was explicitly for kids under the age of 18. There, I defy anybody to... Tell me that they did not learn something last, like recently, whether it's a new tool or a new piece of information. There's a lot of ways that you can learn. And also learning doesn't necessarily just mean school or education. Learning is training. You learn on the job. Um, learning is also like you do. I, I, uh, I was working previously in a lot of therapy games. Still am. But most of my portfolio so far is therapy games. And you are not just learning in, in therapy, you're learning coping mechanisms. You're also learning more about yourself or you're learning methods to learn more about yourself. Or in some cases, when it comes to physical and um, certain types of physical, occupational, um, cognitive therapy, you are relearning things that you thought you would never forget, like how to walk, how to stand, how to put items in the right order. Or how to sort items that are different from each other. All of that is learning. And not just for kids. There you have it. Learning, you can't escape it. It will follow you wherever you go. You'll have to do it over and over again. I was wrong. I was so wrong. This has survived our design interview postmortems for a while now, but we have as one of our questions, what is something you've learned recently? And not about game design. Just what have you learned recently? Just anything. Yeah. Yeah. It's really fun to hear what people talk about. Yeah, they always always have something good, right? I don't think we've had a clinker yet. No, no. It's been, uh, it's, it's also the the breadth of what people have learned about um, or the experience they had learning something is is seems to be just the way they talk about it. The the impact of the experience of learning that they have carried the most. Mm-hmm. Myth busted. Perfect. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, um, that I think that wraps up our discussion our uh our 
firing squad had all these myths, getting them out of here, um, puncturing them, uh, beating them up, and uh, refuting them. So um, we've done our work there. So uh, Lydia, thank you so much for joining us for that discussion. That was an absolute pleasure. And um, the, I really loved a lot of the metaphors you brought to bear on it um, to bring a lot more synthesis to some of these sort of esoteric game design concepts. That, 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 that is what I do. I make metaphors to help me help people understand things. <laughs> That's I, your whole thing. <laughs> awesome. So um, to wrap up the show, um, we're going to uh, just close out with our game design rarities segment where we uh, pick out an uh, kind of a game that's a bit off the beaten path, maybe uh, not so renowned, but uh, provides an interesting example of game design approach. Um, and in this case, uh, I'm going to be talking today, um, I'm going to be talking today about uh, Operation Tango. Um, this game actually, th this game has a, a lot of, of resonance with a lot of what we talked about today. Um, so without further ado, um, just to quickly describe what it is, it's an espionage-themed cooperative adventure that challenges you and a friend to complete dangerous missions across the globe in a high-tech, near-future world. So you're just a team of two. Um, one of you decides to be an agent, so like a field agent, and the other one is a hacker. Um, and you have to work in, uh, in tandem, I should say, uh, to bring a high-tech global menace to its knees. And in full disclosure, I have not been paying very much attention to the cutscenes in between the levels, so I can't really describe that menace to you. Um, <laughs> but what I can say <laughs> is that the game um, provides a really interesting asymmetrical cooperative adventure. So think of like Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes or uh, Space Team or uh, Artemis, you know, any of those games where everyone's working with different data sets um, that need to be combined in order to you know, move forward in the game. Um, another really cool thing about Operation Tango that I appreciate is that it accommodates what I would consider to be kind of two um, you know, prevailing gaming styles. I wouldn't say these are the two, but they are certainly uh, two varieties that um, are kind of dichotomous. One of them, I would say, is like a puzzle and strategy type thinker. And then the other one is more of an action and reflex type um, gameplay uh, mechanic and, and character. So that's the hacker and the field agent, respectively. Mm -hmm. um, so if, if you and your friend have like kind of different tastes in terms of how you interact with the game or the kinds of mechanics you appreciate, um, the game is sufficiently asymmetrical that the experiences are pretty different from each other. Um, the hacker is very much strategy, puzzle gameplay. Um, the agent is a lot more like actual platforming and uh, responsive reflex times and things like that. Um, so, you know, what's, what is most fascinating to me about this game, though, is that the game mechanics to me are actually tertiary to the actual game itself. And the game itself is communicating <laughs> with the <laughs> other person that you're playing with. Um, and a word of warning, uh, <laughs> the game will reveal your communication strengths and weaknesses in <laughs> equal measure. Um, <laughs> So uh, if you find yourself, you know, getting frustrated when someone immediately doesn't know what you mean when you say, well, it's the thing with the line that's pointing down and there's two dots above it. You know, if, if you get really mad that someone doesn't immediately understand <laughs> that sentence, um, you may not uh, enjoy this game at all because um, oftentimes it's going to be putting symbols in front of you that, you know, you can't say like, oh, it's like it's a, I, ha I have A, B or C and they have to tell you whether it's A, B or C. It's like. It'll put like a hexagon with three lines and then like a squiggly, you know, like these sort of abstract shapes that actually require you to do a lot of description. Um, and so, you know, like Overcooked or Monaco, some of these you know, similar, you know, cooperative style games like this, a lot of the biggest problems uh, will emerge from within your team, you know, um, right. It's like they're calling from inside the house. <laughs> you said wavy squiggle. That's clearly a squiggly wave. <laughs> exactly. Um I have three questions for you, Brandon. Okay. One, who do you typically play with? Two, have you tried playing the opposite role than what you feel like is most suited to you? And three, what was that like? All right. Those are great questions. Um, so um, I've played uh, with my girlfriend and with my brother. Um, and uh, in both cases, I think I did pretty well. Um, <laughs> no, no one got too angry at anyone. So... Um, <laughs> But, but, you know, that, that, that is the thing is like there, there's moments where you are both frustrated 
And the important thing is how you direct it, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> the game is frustrating you on purpose. Like it's it, to Dan's point about, is it a, a squiggly wave or a wavy squiggle? You know, it's like <laughs> the game actually does put that level of ambiguity into what it's telling you um, to test, you know, your ability to parse, uh, communicate and deal with frustration. And, um, you know, I typically play the field agent, which um, because you're doing more reflex and action style gameplay, um, you're asking these questions really urgently, you know, because you're, there's like a gate that's like closing. You've got five seconds. So you're like <laughs> describing this stuff, but like really, really fast. Um, and like if they don't respond in time, then you're just hosed. Um, so there's like a lot of time pressure that impacts it as well. Um, and yeah, I have to say, I don't think I've played too much of the hacker one. So, um, I, you know, I, I, <laughs> I have been sort of selfish and just played as the field agent because that was that it sort of uh, met the preferences of both people playing. Yeah, that makes sense. But, uh, but yeah, so, uh, you know, I, but that's the thing is like, what's nice is I actually, once I beat this game, I have an entire second game to beat in the form of the other role. Um, yeah. I'll so, be your Uncle Barry Brandon. If you want okay, to. Okay. Awesome. So there you go. We've got our, <laughs> I've got my, my inverted player there. I can be your hacker mm -hmm. um, and you can be the one yelling at me about what these symbols are <laughs> as the game <laughs> sends you down like sort of a, a cool data stream that you're flying down like on a surfboard kind of thing. It's a triangular cube, Brandon. It's a triangular cube. <laughs> like that's in the fourth dimension. I don't see that. <laughs> oh man. Um, but yeah, you know, I would uh, highly recommend the game. It's a really fun cooperative experience. Um, it draws on all of the cool and uh, interesting affordances of asymmetrical game design. Um, and, uh, and yeah, you know, I guess to, to have it, uh, to tie it back to what we were talking about today, um, I think it's, it's a case where cooperation can be, you know, just as fractious, um, and, and challenging as competition is. Um, so it really, it does depend on the context where you're experiencing that yeah. stuff. All right. So, uh, that wraps up today's, uh, myth busting session. Um, tune in, uh, for our next episode, we'll be talking about, uh, the fact that many of our predictions, uh, you know, in spite of our best efforts, may have been slightly incorrect about the uh, the growing popularity of VR. It does appear to be here to stay. Um, if you enjoyed the rambling I did about VR today, definitely tune in next time because it's going to be just that. Um, so, yeah, uh, thanks again, everybody, and uh, have a great afternoon. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Filament Games podcast. If you like to hear more about games, game-based learning, and what's happening at our studio, subscribe today on iTunes or Stitcher. And be sure to visit us at our website, filamentgames.com. <laughs>